The Lord promises life abundantly. That includes physical life. That includes having the ability to stand up straight and to embody a really good example of the principles that you hold dear. Deadlifting is a form of evangelization. All right, so I am here with Parker from the Chivalry Guild. The Chivalry Guild is an interesting Twitter account that has recently come onto my radar and which I was pretty interested in because it's a new account and it's one of these kind of new types of accounts that you see out on Twitter nowadays, which is it's very theoretical, it's very historically researched, but it's also very aesthetic and it's a, a clear historical, philosophical, aesthetic brand project. And this is a new type of uh, internet persona. This is a new breed of of especially Twitter-based kind of intellectually oriented content. So I just find it very interesting. You seem to be a very interesting example of this, Parker. So I wanted to bring you onto the show just to talk a little bit about, you know, the theories and histories of chivalry, the aesthetics of chivalry, and unpack a little bit how you've kind of built the project, why you launched this project, and just little lessons you might have learned along the way in kind of navigating this new, weird, you know, uh, intellectual space on, on the internet. So thanks for coming on, Parker. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Yeah, me too. Me too. So why don't we just start with, why don't you hit the audience with what is the essence of chivalry in your view? And with a personal angle, tell us a little bit about, you know, why you thought this was an important uh, territory to research and to write about and, and to build an internet brand around. Okay, so my project really started after I read The Necessity of Chivalry by C.S. Lewis. And Lewis says that the essence of chivalry is captured in this line from The Death of Arthur, it's the, the eulogy for Sir Lancelot. And the, the lines are something, something to the effect that thou wert the meekest man that ever ate in hall among ladies, and thou wert the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in the rest. And Lewis says that this, the essence of chivalry is captured in this double demand that it makes on human nature. That uh, a man be both courteous and gentlemanly, but also ferocious and someone that you really do not want to cross when uh, someone th that you really don't want to make angry. I thought this was fascinating because for the longest time, whenever I had heard of chivalry, it was simply, you know, a man holding a door open for a woman. And some nostalgic onlooker saying, oh, I guess chivalry isn't dead. And Lewis is making the point that it's really something much more invigorating than that. It's really deeply aspirational. It has grand ambitions to turn a man into, uh, in Lewis's words, a, a work of art. So I just thought that this was uh, wonderfully eye-opening. It was not what I was expecting. And I went on and said, this is, this is so great. This, this fits in perfectly with this kind of vitalist Twitter. And I went looking and I was just shocked to find that there was nobody who was popularizing this. There was nobody who was really trying to run with this. And so 
I just thought that that was something I had to do. And uh, that was about a year ago, and it's been going really well ever since. Okay, fascinating. So yeah, you started about a year ago. You have somewhere around 10,000 followers now. So I'd say that's a pretty good growth rate. How did you think about conceptualizing the project, launching the project at the early stage when you were like, you know, I want to tackle some kind of public intellectual project. Just tell me, how did you think about the initial parameters? How did you decide you wanted to focus on a Twitter account? How did you decide that you wanted to do this kind of aesthetically branded uh, pseudonymous persona? Just how did you think through the very initial stages of carving out this project? I should add that right before I had read Lewis, I read Bronze Age Mindset and just thought it was uh, wonderfully ingenious. And so I was following BAP closely and all things BAP related on Twitter. And this just seemed to fit in really well with that. Um, Maybe just combining my interest in uh, Catholicism, Christianity, with that kind of vitalism and showing that there is, there is some room for a, for a Christian vitalism. There's that. There's also a long-running interest I've had in manosphere-related things, mostly because I think that they're, they're kind of lame to a certain extent, um, you know, this, I, I'm thinking back to my childhood, my formative years and how just tremendously uninterested the culture was in thinking about masculinity or manliness. And once it seemed apparent that people were starting to get interested in that, I was, I was really eager for that development. I really wanted to see what would come of that. But everything that I encountered in the manosphere was just quickly turned into kind of a lame, self-helpy, uh, weird lumberjack, dandy aesthetic. Uh, one book I got on it was really adamant that, you know, you read Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, and you memorize Ben Franklin's 13 Virtues. And that was really the, the extent of it. Um, so I've always kind of wanted the manosphere to be better than it is. And this seemed like kind of the way of going about it. So, so there's something of that in my account, in my project. And then also just uh, Twitter aesthetics is so lively, so wonderful. Uh, it really cleanses the timeline. So it just seemed really natural that the, the nightly chivalric medieval aesthetic fits in really well with that project and adds, adds something to it. You know, in addition to the, the Gothic cathedral, which is, you know, I think really related to the concept of chivalry. Those are both products of the same medieval mind. So, okay. you know, that's kind of a jumbled way of trying to account for the things that I like to, uh, like to put forward on the timeline.
Yeah, I hear that. Okay, cool. So do you have any kind of what's your background? Like, do you have any kind of intellectual background? Or are you just a guy who likes to read, you know, uh, books about medieval knights, and you're just like, Oh, I'm passionate about this, I can, I can, I can research this and make a whole kind of content engine around it. Like, what what kind of background do you have on on this kind of stuff? Not much. That's cool. I, uh, <laughs> that kind I of have makes a... it even more interesting in a way because that's what's so cool about this kind of new internet sphere is that it's like if you're sufficiently interested and passionate and you can put in the work to like read a lot of books and, and translate that into interesting, meaningful, aesthetically resonant content, like you can build these really fascinating little projects. So um, I, I find it even more interesting that you you don't necessarily have, um, you know, a particularly sophisticated uh, background or any expertise in this. So um, as someone who doesn't have an expertise, you know, some kind of like official fancy expertise, that is, so you're obviously developing one, um, you know, how do you think about that, um, that project of, you know, going from someone who's not doesn't necessarily have any kind of fancy intellectual background to deciding that you're going to like develop uh, themes around a certain concept and, and make yourself an authority on something like just how do you how do you think about that? What does that involve? Um, are there any lessons you've learned in how you've like begun to make this, um, you know, project of, of self-cultivation? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. There's there's a there's a good bit of imposter syndrome going on. I I've just undertaken a, a course of, of reading reading the the songs, reading the Arthurian literature, reading medieval history, reading biography, and uh, just trying to do that as quickly as I can and make up for uh, what I don't know. I, in a sense, I don't I was the recipient of a really shabby public school education. Uh, so I'm just in all ways trying to make up for that, make up for, for lost time. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a graduate degree in English literature. Uh, so, so I'm kind of a literary guy. And I'm really interested in history, uh, the way history and literature go together so nicely. Uh, so right. I'm just trying to take... Uh, that and I, I've always had a, an interest in the Middle Ages, but uh, now I'm really doing the the crash course study that I should have undertaken long ago. Okay, cool, cool. So tell me a little bit about how you work. I think people will find this very interesting because we definitely have a lot of people in, in my community and indie thinkers as well who are very interested in uh, similar kinds of projects like this one where people have a certain kind of interest in a certain set of themes. They want to do focused research on those themes and then they want to do content around them and build a kind of brand or project around them. But I think a lot of people struggle to figure out what exactly is the regiment that is best, you know, how exactly concretely should one do this. So give us great detail, as much great detail as you can on, on how you operate. Like, are you going to the library and getting a stack of old books about like medieval knights and uh, the codes of conduct from, you know, the, the 1400s or something. And then you're like reading those books, you're translating them into a word document. Are you primarily just writing tweets in a word document and then, you know, uh, editing them and posting them? Are you scheduling them? How many are you doing per week? How do you just, just paint for us, if you will, kind of the system that you've, that you've uh, created to build out this project on Twitter? 
Yeah, as best I can explain it, I have uh, two main Word documents. I have a reading journal and then a, a notes for Twitter page. And I, uh, I do my reading, like I said, in the, uh, in, the, in the great songs, in medieval history, in the Arthurian literature, try and transcribe whatever really strikes me as fascinating in my, in my journal, and then try and think about how that can be incorporated and in my for Twitter document, I've, I've got it divided into all of the various themes that I like to hit. And so I just, I just like to have uh, a big reservoir of, of ideas to, to tap into. I don't, I kind of admire these people who just tweet stream of consciousness. Um, I don't, I don't really do that. I've, I've got to kind of plan them out a little bit more thoughtfully make sure I'm not repeating myself, make sure, um, you know, there's a little bit of variety. I try to aim for about five tweets a day, three or four retweets that are on brand. So I'm definitely more of a quality over quantity type guy. I, I, want to, I want to tweet well rather than just firing off a bunch of tweets Onto the timeline. I also, you know, in reading some people's thoughts on Twitter, really want to take care to give my tweets some time to run. So, you know, I, I don't want to be tweeting one tweet after another in 20 minutes before, you know, I start stepping on my previous tweets. That's a part of my, my strategy. Five tweets a day spaced out pretty well, two or three hours in between. That's I think this is interesting to people because, um, you know, it's not bad to get to 10,000 followers in a year just doing five tweets a day. I think a lot of people would think you, you would need to do more than that to, to grow at that kind of rate. So that's interesting. And are there particular kind of types of tweets or uh, particular forms of, of content that you find to be particularly um, important for growing an audience around these types of projects? Like are, are the more aesthetic ones, do those... Do those get shared more widely? Um, are threads better than individual tweets, or what have you learned in terms of um, the the types the types of uh, tactics that have worked the best for you? Yeah, I I would I would say that I started out and I was really frustrated um, because when I would try to compose threads, I wanted to just not you know tweet out only these kind of one line takes. I wanted to do something a little bit more substantial than that. But, you know, when I tried my initial threads, they, they got very little engagement. And I was really discouraged by that. So I kind of gave up on them for a while. And I give a shout out to a friend on Twitter, this account named Aristocratic Fury. This guy is a European historian, and he puts together these just and detailed and long, and they get massive engagement. So I, I was pretty excited after seeing his success to, to give it another go with the threads. And that has, my second go round has worked much better. 
I, I was listening to somebody talk about threads, the, the value of threads. Even if they do get lower engagement, they do so much to, to build ethos, to build credibility and authority that they're, they're just definitely worth it. Even if, even if they don't, you know, engage as big as the, the one-off tweets. So that's okay. been my development in that. As far as the aesthetics tweets, yeah, I just, I really like hitting a nice mix of theory of chivalry, uh, hitting the, hitting directly the sources, doing the literary stuff, doing the, doing the aesthetics stuff. Um, I just, I, I really like the idea of integrating all of those. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that uh, perspective. I think a lot of people will find it kind of inspiring to know that, you know, you can do what you've done within just one year, basically just from reading history books and, uh, you know, writing out interesting, thoughtful content, just five tweets a day. It seems like doable. You know, it's not, um, it's I'm sure a lot of hard work to, to stay consistent with that, but it's very doable. Um, and I think, I think what people underestimate is that on Twitter or really on any online platform, being super focused in terms of brand and content really, really helps because once you get, once you get some followers, they love specifically the thing that they kind of signed up for from you. And so if you keep going with that, it compounds more rapidly. Um, and, and I, I think people don't appreciate that. So it's like with my, you know, someone like me or whatever, if it's just like your personal account and you tweet whatever you're interested in or whatever you think, you know, it's like, um, the problem with that is you're, talking about all different types of things and you know some people like it some people some people some people like some of the topics i talk about but then they don't like the other topics so on any given tweet the audience the alignments between like my audience and the tweet is not super tight whereas if you're like i'm the fucking chivalry guy and every tweet is just like fire content about like uh chivalrous ethics and aesthetics. It's just like everyone following loves that stuff. So every tweet is going to be much more likely to be shared and embraced. So that kind of like hyper focus in terms of themes and aesthetic, uh, really, really, uh, is a benefit for, for growing these kinds of niche intellectual accounts. I can definitely testify to that. I've become more disciplined as my account has grown. I, I used to have a tendency to add in a political take here or there. And uh, I've since learned better. This, this account should be very, very focused on, you know, medieval thoughts for, for modern living. Makes a lot of sense. And, and, and I think people should pay attention to that if they're interested in building this kind of project. So, okay, great. So let's talk a little bit. That, that was very revealing. And I think will be useful and inspiring for all the people out there who are, you know, working on these kinds of niche uh, intellectual upstart projects. Now let's talk a little bit more about just the substance of chivalry. Um, in a previous conversation you and I had off the record, you, you said some very fascinating things to me about how, you know, I think you said at one point that Christians don't have to be bug men. Uh, this really kind of st stuck in my mind. So why don't we start with, you know, wh why for, in your opinion, are so many Christian men today? Why are they so naturally inclined to, to becoming bug men? And why, what are they missing? What is the mistake uh, that leads them to become bug men when they, they don't need to? I was thinking about this. There's, there's so much going on here that I'm only going to be able to capture a sliver. But 
there seems to be this just relentless drive towards simplification in our understanding of, of any given concept. And so we have to take things that are you know, really nuanced, like Christianity, and we have to reduce it simplistic terms. And we seem to have focused in on uh, the meek shall inherit the earth and turn the other cheek and made that the whole of Christianity. So, 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 so anything that doesn't go along with uh being meek or turning the other cheek is, is really suspect. And, you know, I'm no classical philologist, but my understanding uh, of the, the Greek term that is translated meek is that it has to do with training war horses to be composed, to not respond to fear or provocation, but only to the master's command. And so, you know, that's a pretty uh, wonderful martial image that we have just turned into uh, a really close synonym for just pure weakness and being a pushover. I don't know if it has to do with meek simply rhyming with weak, uh, that we just assume the synonymousness there, but that's a big part of, I think, why uh, yeah. there is a there's a credibility. There, there's a, there's there's something that our pagan vitalist bros are hitting on when they say that Christianity is for bugmen. Okay, fascinating. And so, what? Give us some some specific insights that you've you've pulled out of the the chivalric codes that would be useful for Christian men to, to think about on, on how to not be a bug man and, you know, how to actually think about this Christian vitalism. Um, what are, what are some heuristics or frameworks or, or bits of, of insight that you've, you've extracted from your research? Well, I love to, uh, I love to reference Geoffroy de Charny's, uh, a knight's own book of chivalry. He's writing this in the, the 14th century. It's just this legendary French knight, uh, renowned for his prowess. And he writes this, this manual. It's, it's pretty much the best manual that we have on chivalry. And the essence of it, we need to get back to prowess. The, at this point, the French knighthood is just getting trampled on by their English counterparts. He says, we have to return to prowess. We have lost our way. We've gone soft. And so, you know, this might be kind of crude, but I just, I simply think that to use a baptism, it, sun and steel, like we need to just become physically vigorous again. And there are so many forces Working against that, this is not just a problem with Christian men. This is a problem with men altogether. I'm, I'm sure you've heard that tidbit about how the average 22-year-old man today 
has the testosterone levels of a 67 year old from 2000. And let's, let's be serious. Like men in 2000 are not the Spartans at Thermopylae. So like this decline has been just from previous decline. So I think yeah. that this is just the key. Like it, 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 just, it has to start with prowess and there's actually, you know, a pretty good justification or a pretty good um, vindication of that in the, in the chivalric literature. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could make the case that actually Christian men need to are, are ethically required to be more vigorous, to have more prowess, you know, maybe it has something to do with, you know, uh, defending the faith or something like that. Right. Or, or projecting the faith. Right. I mean, you have to imagine the, the men who fought and died in the, the crusades were probably, you know, pretty high T pretty, pretty, pretty vitalistic badasses, you know? So it's like, you know, are, are, could you even make the case that Christianity kind of requires men to not be bug men, uh, requires them to be vigorous and have prowess? Oh, 100%. I, I think that uh, deadlifting is a form of evangelization. I, I'm sorry, evangelization. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. You, uh, the Lord promises um, life abundantly. And, you know, I, I don't want to take that in directions that it shouldn't go, but that includes physical life. That includes, you know, having the ability to stand up straight and to embody a really good example of the principles that you hold dear. That that's not unimportant. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this is something else to go back to that previous question. Uh, one of the things that I most appreciate about BAPS project is that it, it just kind of belies this cliche that we've absorbed about how appearances don't matter. Appearances are always deceiving. Don't, don't trust appearances. Um, okay, well, I, I can understand where people are coming from when they say that. Appearances can sometimes be deceiving. But a lot of times they're, they're not. And so uh, the exterior of a man and the interior of a man, those are aspects of the same person. They should, they should be in alignment. A, a healthy spiritual life should oftentimes be reflected in a, in a healthy and strong body. Yeah, I know what you mean, because it, on one level, the superficial trappings of the material world are, you know, deceiving and they are superficial and you don't want to be, you know, pulled into the false allures of of this earthly world, you know, beneath beneath the appearances of, you know, social fashion and, and so on um, is where all of the important stuff lies. So. That part makes sense, but I think you're right that people kind of over extrapolate from that wisdom to some kind of naive idea that appear appearance altogether just doesn't matter. I think you're right that if you're if you're living in deep in a deep way, the correct way, if you're if you're living the, the true life and the good life fully, then you should also tend to be producing beauty uh, as a kind of natural byproduct. And, and if you're not producing beauty as a natural byproduct, then then it, it's some possible sign that that you're you're off the straight and narrow in a way. I think about this with the um, I think about this with the 
with the cathedrals of of you know the, the the great cathedrals basically like if you think about the the kind of itinerant laborers who built these cathedrals it's kind of like you know these are some of the greatest works of art ever in the history of of, of human history basically and they were made by itinerant laborers who obviously were you know knew what they were doing in terms of the concrete crafts but you know they're not uh, formally educated you know they're not like licensed uh architectural profession professionals you know um and and yet and yet they so so these are you know hard scrabble men you know doing the the stonework and the metallurgy and all of this stuff um these are really hard scrabble men and yet uh without formal education they're able to collectively build these probably the most extraordinary works of art um ever and you know it's not for nothing that christianity produced these these greatest works of art ever arguably um, so yeah, I like, I like, I like to think of those examples of how, you know, no matter who you are or where you come from, if, if you're really correctly aligned on the good and the true and, uh, that, th then you're, then you're going to be producing beauty, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're, um, you know, uh, powerful or, you know, a manual laborer. I love that idea of, uh, the cathedrals because that's. That is making beauty so as to please God. Um, and there's, there's, there's just a really nice analogy there between the cathedrals and, and us. Um, that's, that's, that's not to say we should you know, go and get plastic surgeries and uh, we have to just blow our budget on, um, on our wardrobe. But there, there is something about about uh, presenting that that vitality, having that interior vitality, and having it uh, having it radiate outwards. I, I did want to say something real quick on the on the cathedrals. I think there's something really fascinating, and I'm I'm trying to develop this idea. Um, the relationship of strength and beauty when it comes to the engineering of those of those cathedrals i always took it oh excuse me i always took it for granted that um the you know some of the distinguishing features of the gothic cathedrals the the flying buttresses the pointed arches arches the ribbed vaulting that that was just for aesthetic show but that's actually for um, strengthening and fortifying the structure so that this really heavy stone can go ever, ever high. And so that you can use wall space for uh, paint, uh, for stained glass windows. Uh, there's a really fascinating relationship here between strength and beauty and then the way in which those things that make the structure stronger like actually are quite beautiful the the flying buttresses and the ribbed vaulting this stuff is actually quite beautiful so i don't know i'm i'm still working on developing all of these thoughts about about strength but there's there's clearly something here that we have neglected in recent decades right right 
And I'm curious just if there are other key things that especially Christian men today should keep in mind or need to keep in mind. Like what what really are the all of the things you need to do to 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 be a modern chivalrous uh, Christian vitalist, you know, we've, you've obviously alluded a little bit to, uh, you know, physical fitness and, uh, and having, you know, physical prowess. Uh, but what else? I'm sure, I'm sure there are other things you, you tweet about many different things like bro science and also, you know, um, esoterica. So tell me about more, some, some of these other strands. My research has led me to a, a formula of six essential chivalrous virtues and the six are prowess courtesy honor generosity loyalty and faith so of course i I like to start with prowess but then moving on to to courtesy i really like to think about how one can be an engaging gentleman in this time of, you know, chronic fatigue and chronic grumpiness and, uh, you know, social anxiety that comes out as kind of a, a short temperedness. So I really like to think about, you know, the simple, easy ways that one can distinguish oneself just by simply being engaged, by, by being happy to see somebody else by learning people's names, you know, especially the kind of overlooked people uh, in the places that you frequent, learning their name and calling them by name. This is obviously a, a, a huge aspect of, of modern chivalry. Hmm. Honor, cool. honor uh, the, the development of a, of a really good reputation and the the, the maintenance and care of it. Generosity. Oh, it, this has been, um, you know, a pretty fascinating thing to learn about. The, the way that knights were expected to give largesse almost recklessly. So I, I've, I've been trying to think about, you know, ways in which we can be chivalrous with money. You know, I would, I would include in that... Uh, Shopping as much as you can locally, patronizing local farmers. Yeah, even if it is more expensive than the stuff that you'll get at Kroger, that is, uh, that is a fruitful expense of, of resources. So I like to think about that. You know, and if, if a person doesn't have money to give, uh, you can be generous in so many other ways, generous with your time, generous with your good cheer. I also, you know, this, this links pretty nicely to prowess because the man who has developed his strength can be generous in so many additional ways, uh, helping his friends with difficult physical tasks, protecting those who don't have people to protect them. This is, this is maybe at the heart of, of chivalry. The knight is called to defend the widow and the orphan, especially because they have nobody else to defend them. So again, prowess, kind of bleeding into generosity. And then finally, like I said, faith. 
it, it's, it's worth emphasizing because maybe the Victorians kind of secularized it, but slavery is the product of the most deeply Christian age in history. This is, this is not separable from the faith. So, so I, that's, that's the formulation I like, the, the six chivalric virtues. And then That's I like great. to, to yeah, bro science obviously relates to, to prowess. Esoterica uh, relates to prowess. It also relates to, you know, medieval mystical faith. Uh, a sense that the, the, the world is not explained by this rationalistic science that we put so much faith in. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's fascinating. And do you do you see any figures in contemporary public life who are, you know, good representations of of chivalry? Are there any, you know, I don't know, currently living authors or actors or um, maybe even entrepreneurs and anyone in public life today who is a kind of surprisingly impressive example of of modern chivalry and or also like cultural artifacts like movies or books uh, or even TV shows, maybe like any, anything in public life today that uh, is kind of striking positive examples of, of what you have in mind? Well, I, I would say, uh, and I want to give credit here to uh, a now defunct podcast that had really good episodes on the way chivalry has survived in different forms in uh, modern archetypes. They had an episode on how, uh, you know, the cowboy is basically the knight errant brought into the American West. In many ways, like the... Clint Eastwood. Yeah. John Wayne. Absolutely. Right. And what's the podcast you uh, say the name? Oh, my goodness. I can't recall right now. It might be oh, okay. Chivalry Today. Okay. We'll find Chivalry it. Chivalry Today. Okay, so the cowboy... That would mean kind of maybe contemporary American Western films would be would be one uh, kind of example, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even the the private eye or the detective is in some ways an adaptation of the knight errant. Uh, he always has. Uh, he always seems to kind of have a squire who fits into his. Uh, his projects, there's always a, a damsel in distress. There's always um, a quest for him to go on. Mm. Uh, right. so, so, so these come to mind. As far as, as, far as people, uh, I, this is a, a decade and a half back, but I, I go back to Pat Tillman. Hmm. Pat Tillman was an NFL player who, after 9-11 left the Arizona Cardinals to join the Army Rangers. He died in Afghanistan in 2004, I believe. And there's ugliness involved with his, uh, his death. It was not under uh, the most noble, jingoistic conditions. And then there was an attempt to, to cover that up to make it seem noble and jingoistic. Uh, but but nonetheless, the, this guy was so off the charts awesome. And 
manly. Uh, there were there's just so many stories about him uh, and 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 loyalty. He he would constantly like turn down bigger paychecks because he felt a sense of loyalty. Now that might have been very uh, misplaced, but nonetheless, like this is a man out of time. Okay, fascinating. I like uh, Alexander Usich. I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, but he is the uh, the current heavyweight champion boxer, or at least he has three belts. Uh, but he's a he's a Ukrainian, I believe. He's a devout Orthodox Christian. He uh, he prays for his opponents. He is never um, brought into the kind of Conor McGregor, uh, you know, silly showmanship. There's there's a real gentlemanliness about what he's doing, and I don't know all that much about him, but as I try to you know survey the scene and find examples of chivalrous people, he comes to mind as a as a really nice possibility. I think I'll do an essay on him. Nice. Coming up soon here. Those are great uh, in recommendations. I always like hearing about people who are currently living who are kind of worth, you know, looking into and paying attention to and, and perhaps being admirable. So those are interesting leads, which I did not know anything about either of those guys. So cool. Very cool. Okay. Fascinating. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, if there's just anything else that, you know, I haven't asked you that that I should be asking you that you think, uh, you know, you've learned about chivalry that my audience might be particularly interested in. Um, you know, I've been thinking about it kind of from my own perspective, like what you're saying resonates with me in a way, because if I'm being brutally honest with myself over the past year, I kind of become, I kind of, I kind of fell into some bug man, uh, habits in a way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too bad, but like, you know, through the pandemic, I gained a little bit of weight. I'm a little, little, I'm a little, a little less like on point than, than I generally am. And when I think about it, a lot of it has to do with um, I've been building like this business operation basically and business, business like sucks the life out of you basically. And, and it, it, business like contemporary business world is basically just like bug man machine. Basically it turns, it turns, it, it turns you into a bug man in so many different ways. It's kind of the opposite of the chivalric, the chivalric code in a way, because it's like, you know, you're, tr you're trying to build this like instrumentally rational, efficient thing. Um, you're kind of by definition concerned with making money and that's kind of the opposite of, of the generosity value that you alluded to. And it's kind of intrinsically ugly in a way because when everything's getting pulled into this kind of instrumental rationality, you know, you'll make certain aesthetic decisions that are more aligned to like optimizing some kind of result rather than just being beautiful and, and good and true. Uh, and so, you know, I like to think I'm, you know, I like to think I'm a, I'm a, I'm an honest guy and a, and a good person. And, and I, and, you know, I keep things in, I keep things balanced, but even still just in the operation of like building a business, it's just like a very, I don't know, it's a, it, it can be just an intrinsically kind of soul sucking thing, if, especially if you're like me and you get kind of like, obsessed with things and you want to win certain games, you know, you, you try to win that game and, and it pulls all the, all the life out of you physically, emotionally, psychologically, and kind of just makes you a boring kind of ugly, uh, uh, you know, bug man, basically. <laughs> um, uh, so I like thinking a lot about what you're saying, basically, I'm just like, yeah, to like, I want to, I want to live a life where, you know, I care less about money. I care more about just being, 
handsome and thoughtful and kind and strong and good. And it's just like, if you could just focus on being all of those things, you just have faith that like money will come. You know, I think this is like one of the cool things about like true Christian faith, especially among powerful men is like, you genuinely don't care about money. You're just genuine. I mean, you care about like maintaining, you know, all minimum, like basic responsibility around finances and stuff like that. But you're genuinely kind of like, I trust that God will take after, God will look after everything. I'm just going to be responsible. I'm going to do, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be loving and generous and loyal to those who matter. And I just trust that God will take care of the money. The money will come. It's not a big deal. Uh, You don't, have to like seek the money as your main thing in life, which will just make you ugly and bad and, and, and weak. So I'm kind of ranting here a bit, but I'm just trying to kind of throw onto the table some like personal, some, some personal data points that, that resonate with uh, what you're saying. I think. Have you read uh, Burke's reflections? He's got a long time ago. I, I read bits like probably in grad school, but I don't recall very much now. He says, uh, the age of chivalry is gone and it's been replaced by that of sophisters, economists, and calculators. And yeah, there, there really is something about industrial capitalism that makes our lives easy and comfortable and safe. And it makes it really hard to face. I just, you know, think of like, what they've done with chi- children's playgrounds. I don't know if you've, you've kind of kept your eye on this, oh, but yeah. they used to have yeah. yeah playgrounds that kids could really, really play on and be. Now they have just been they made so on. lame. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it's so bad. They're, 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 they're like made out, everything's made out of plastic now. And it's like these like fake soft floors um, and, and they're so lame. It's like, there's nothing even fun to do on them. I remember even when I was growing up and I'm, I'm not, I'm not that old. Um, you know, I remember the playground in my neighborhood when I was first young enough to like go to the playground by myself, whenever your parents let you do that, I guess at my day and age, it was like, I don't know, eight years old or something like that. Maybe I, I was allowed to go to the local neighborhood, uh, playground by myself. I might be botching that, but ballpark. I remember the slide. I was scared to go on the slide. It was that big and I was so relatively small that you had to climb a pretty large staircase and the whole thing was made of steel or aluminum, whatever it was made out of, um, some combination of, of metals. It was an all metal slide. There was like this very tall spiral staircase. You had to go up to the top to the point that it, it, it actually stretched my my nerves. It stretched my, my fear and, and my anxiety um, to go on it for the first time and that's – that's what playgrounds should be. That's what kids should be constantly. Kids should constantly have um, margins and junctures where they feel uncomfortable, but it's all you know controllable. The slide wasn't going to fall down as long as I was. As long as I was like focused and had basic motor skills, I was not going to hurt myself on that slide. But it was a little bit scary. And if I was really really stupid, maybe I would fall off and like break an arm, and that would serve me right. But even then, I probably wouldn't die. You know, so it's like. Uh, we need exactly that type of uh, danger for our kids. And you just can't get it anywhere nowadays. Everything is so padded. Yeah, absolutely. This this is what uh, industrialism has done and in economics. And yeah, long story short, we arrive at the 
the metaphor of the, the lame playground, which is 100% safe and no fun at all and just lame. And there has to be this really, maybe, maybe this is, you know, kind of in closing, uh, there has to be a really vigorous attempt to overcome modern industrialism's designs for us. It's, it's really hard, but it's, you know, it's, it's your vitality. Right. Well, you know, I really love what you're doing. And I really, I, this was an interesting and fun conversation for me that really kind of resonated with me personally in a lot of ways because of, of the reasons I was just talking about. And, you know, one of the most exciting things I think about what you're doing and what, what you're kind of showing with your project and, and what you see across the internet nowadays, if you, if you know where to look, is that in a way, if you can resist all of these temptations to, to, to bug manification, and you can focus on just being a good person, being a super thoughtful person, being uh, an excellent writer, being handsome, being physically fit and conscientious, and, and you can genuinely cultivate these now very rare but very laudable traits and qualities, and you can at the same time just publish them, right, and showcase them and just give people a – a place to rally around them and to subscribe to them and or to support them or engage with them in some ways. It's like the internet is now, it's possible to use the internet as this machine to, to kind of invert these, these bad incentives under industrial capitalism. And you can kind of embody these laudable and rare traits, build an audience around it, build a system around it, build energy and attention around it. And in a way, you know, these niche internet communities and niche internet uh, platforms are a way to basically win the game of life and win under industrial capitalism while focusing on these rare and truly good uh, traits and qualities in a way. Um, and, and I think this is still underestimated how you can kind of use the internet to make uh, profitable in a way or make at least economically sustainable these very, very niche kind of lifestyle, artistic, intellectual, aesthetic kind of lifestyle um, uh, uh, creations or, 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 or cultivations. It's like you, you can make them minimally profitable and sustainable through just showcasing them on the internet. And, and um, I think that's, that's very interesting to me because, you know, I just think about like my own projects. It's like, if I, if I get too obsessed with building a business and I become a bug man, like everything I do is going to suffer and I'm actually going to be less successful in the long run, basically with what I'm building. Right. So it's like, if I could actually care less about business and focus on these other truly laudable and, and very rare qualities and just make them more of a priority and, uh, in, in my content and what I'm writing and publishing and creating, like that's actually going to be better for everything I'm building in the long run, even in terms of instrumental rationality and results and all, and all of, all of that logic. So, I, I think, yeah, I like projects like yours because you're, you know, you're kind of showing that uh, actually, you know, you can, if you go really deep and just focus and build a whole research agenda and a kind of a content and aesthetic around these rare but laudable qualities, you can actually build real power in the world today around them. People like you and your prime, obviously you only started a year ago, but I, I think it's very easy to see that projects such as yours or like Wrath of Non, these, these types of projects could could become whole media companies, you know, in the long run. I, I think someone like Wrath of Non is is probably a few years ahead of you. Um, but there's many others like that who are who who really could build 
um, a whole set of properties around these kinds of uh, intellectual slash aesthetic uh, brands, basically. Um, so maybe one question uh, before I let you go is, um, you know, I'm kind of curious, like, do you see, uh, do you have longer term ambitions? Do you, do you have um, a, a bigger kind of vision for doing this over five years, 10 years, 20 years, and like building something bigger around it? Are you thinking in those terms or not? I mean, you might not be, no, you don't need to be, but I, I see like there could be real long-term potential for these types of intellectual aesthetic brands. I'm just curious what you think or how you see that. This subject really resonates and uh, I, I, I want to run much further. So that's definitely in the plans. I thank you for for your kind words on that. Uh, I, 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 maybe, you know, just to connect to your, your previous comment, in a certain sense, I think that this corner of Twitter really kind of saved my life in a sense. Uh, it saved me from this, uh, this boomer monoculture narrative and uh, showed to it showed me so many of the ways in which I had been lied to my entire life. Everything from, you know, eating steak to, to getting sun to the darker things, you know, porn, promise. Uh, so I just echo your comments, like the, the work being done here, necessarily mine, but the work being done by some of the, the leading voices on this corner of Twitter, like this is astoundingly important. And I, I would like to contribute however humbly I can. I love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Parker. This was fascinating to learn about, you know, how you built your project, how you th how you think about it, some of the concrete aspects of of the the regiment your in your research agenda. Uh, so it's been just really interesting to look under the hood, and it's also been a very uh, you know rewarding conversation around what exactly is chivalry and this idea of Christian vitalism. And you know, you gave us a lot of uh, you know good substantive food for thought on on these themes. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I'll put links uh, in the show notes to all of your stuff. I, it, it seems like the, the main place you want to send people is uh, your your Twitter, right? That's the kind of the that's the the centerpiece of your work at the moment. So um, I will put a link uh, in the show notes so people can, can go say hi to you, give you a follow, and and check out your work. So thanks again. I just want to you know I appreciate you coming on, Justin. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.